Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. And I'm Paige Lambermont. Joining us today to discuss Germany's energy transition is Stefan Hain. Stefan is the head of research at the Center for Industrial Progress, a for-profit think tank seeking to bring about a new industrial revolution. For 10 years, he has studied the fields of energy, environment, climate, technology, and related policies to create a better public understanding of these issues. He resides in Germany, where he lives under what the Wall Street Journal called the world's dumbest energy policy. And that is our topic for today, Stefan. So uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, last week I wrote a short blog post for our website just on some of the problems that have popped up with Germany's green financing policies and um, hoping to get into that with the, in this discussion. But I think probably the best place to start is, uh, could you just start by giving us a brief history of Germany's energy transition? Uh, what were the original goals and how has it proceeded since its inception? Sure. So Energiewende or the German version of energy transition uh, has been around for a couple of decades, actually but it really took shape over the last one or two decades in the public discussion. And uh, so the overarching goal is to move the energy system away from fossil fuels, which uh, dominate the German energy system as well as uh, everything else on the planet, and uh, also move away from nuclear, actually in the German context, and towards renewables. And so the focus there is mostly solar and wind. And so this really took off around the year 2000 when the renewable energy law was enacted in Germany. And uh, so before that, there were some like subsidy uh, schemes um, present in the legislation, but this really incentivized investment in renewable energy and started this kind of transition. And so the overall goal is to get the entire economy off fossil fuels. Um, obviously, this is connected to recently the Paris Climate Accords, reducing CO2 emissions, long-term getting net CO2 zero or carbon zero. And um, yeah, so that's, that's the overarching thing about the energy transition. So given that they're, they're trying to move away from uh, nuclear and from fossil fuels and move towards renewables, what does the energy mix look like now? How far have they gotten? Um, sort of how quickly are they phasing out different things? Yeah, so um, there has been substantial uh, addition in, in terms of renewable capacity in the form of solar and wind since 2000. So this scheme sort of worked in the electricity sector. Um, for 2019, about one third of electricity came from solar and wind and uh, something like 13% from nuclear, then some substantial coal um, and gas. So it's, you could say maybe one third there statistically in the electricity sector. Obviously uh, the energy transition is supposed to uh, capture the entire economy. So right now oil is still the most important fuel in Germany. Obviously transportation sector is very difficult to get off fossil fuels is just the best around. And uh, so uh, I think oil makes up something like over 30% of the energy and renewables 
the last thing I've seen was 2018 statistics, something like 15% or so of the overall energy compared to electricity. Widely publicized aspect of the energy transition was the decision to phase out nuclear, which, as we know, uh, is one of the reliable sources of energy for the grid um, that also happens to not produce any carbon dioxide emissions. Can you talk about what led into the decision to move away from, from nuclear as a generating source? My understanding is that the, the Fukushima incident played an important role in that. Yeah, so it's an important role, but one misconception many people have about this is that this is somehow a sudden reverse of course in German politics, but it actually wasn't. So the f initial phase out policy dates back to the year 2002 under the uh, Chancellor Schröder. So he had a coalition, the Social Democrats was a Green Party, and they enacted many of these uh, you know, relevant legislation things going on there. And so they had a plan to phase out nuclear since 2002. And then in 2010, the, uh, the coalition under Angela Merkel, who is a sort of conservative uh, politician, um, not by American standards, but by German standards, and so she reversed that partially by um, enhancing the lifetime left for the existing nuclear capacity. Then in 2011, uh, the tsunami destroyed some reactors in uh, Japan, at Fukushima, and some partial meltdowns, and there were lots of economic damage, uh, a lot of panic actually in the media. And so public sentiment uh, switched significantly. Before that, it wasn't that relevant. Like the Greens were obviously very opposed to the, the en enhancement of the uh, uh, lifetime of existing nuclear reactors, but most of the population didn't have that on the agenda. And then in 2011, you know, due to uh, a media, uh, well, let's say hype, scare story. Uh, public sentiment really was against that. And very quickly in the same year, uh, legislation took that back and that was a flip-flop between 2010 and 2011. And then they um, hastened the phase out of existing nuclear reactors. And so there's still six reactors left uh, as of today, I think. And so end of 2022 will be uh, the last shutdowns. And then starting in 2023, it will be not allowed to sell any electricity from nuclear reactors in Germany. Wow, it's, it's crazy that they're phasing out the carbon-free energy at the same time as trying to build up wind and solar, which are the unreliable carbon-free energy. Um, do you see any reason that, like, that, that they're viewed so differently, that the, the reliability isn't a factor in the carbon-free energy in Germany? Well, there are actually concerns about a sort of capacity gap after 2022 in particular. Um, so the energy transition is evolving every year. There's new legislation, change of regulations, you know, as always. So we'll, we'll see what happens after that. But the, the reasons given was that fundamentally nuclear is unsafe, which you know, it's not true, but this is still something that is an easy sell in Germany. So if you uh, see the, the, you know, the history of the green movement in Germany, really late 1960s, early 1970s, their primary cause or one of their core issues was really opposition to nuclear and all forms of nu nuclear bombs, but also nuclear energy. 
And so this was a very big issue for them. And, uh, you know, one of the primary causes they had. And so this has permeated towards the general uh, public and, and there's a big anti-nuclear sentiment in the German general public. And so they don't, I think right now, most people don't see it like, oh yeah, there's this uh, CO2 free um, energy source. They just see it, oh yeah, this is a danger. As long as we have these reactors, something like Fukushima 2011 could happen to us, even though there's no danger of a tsunami in Germany. But, you know, this is, it's just decades of indoctrination of public sentiment against nuclear uh, have really culminated in this. So very few people have a big problem with phasing out nuclear. Wow, it's really interesting that it's so much more of a public relations problem than a technological problem. Um, that's, um, you can see that a lot um, in the United States following like Three Mile Island, there was just such a, you know, kind of public relations problem that no more reactors really got built for a long time. So interesting just to see the impact that a public relations problem has on the creation and dissemination of new and useful technology. Yeah, if I, if I can add something to that. Yeah. So this is a public relations and this is how politicians sell this to the general public. But what you see both in the United States and in Germany is also that the advocates of nuclear are not really doing a great job of selling nuclear. And part of the economic problem nuclear has right now is the addition of solar and wind. So these intermittent producers force the rest of the producers on the electric grid to ramp up and down a lot. You know, you need flexible sources of energy to work, quote unquote, well with solar and wind, with intermittent solar and wind. So gas is an obvious choice, hydro is a good choice. And so the existing nuclear capacity is not built for that. They are big baseload units. And so they want to you know, churn out a lot of kilowatt hours at a constant level and not you know, yeah. go up and down. So there's an economic problem as long as uh, renewables in form of solar and wind are the primary focus of the policies. Nuke, existing nuclear is mostly incompatible with that. So you see, for example, economic problems in U.S. power plants, although they are producing a lot at a high capacity factor, and that is because they don't work well with renewables. Yeah, you have a great video on YouTube that I'm going to make sure that we include in the show notes for this episode. That it's titled uh, "How Bad Are Solar and Wind." And uh, you sort of touched on it there, but in that video, you go in and you explain the concept of integration costs for renewables. And these are somewhat hidden costs that are related to the unreliability of these sources. Give us just like a little bit of a deeper overview of what you mean by integration costs and explain the impact that they have, I guess, on the operation of the grid, but then also on on uh, electricity prices in general. Sure. So... Well, you have to understand how uh, you know electric grid operates. So in an electric grid, you need to balance consumption and production of electricity pretty much instantaneously. So you have to keep a balance between what goes into the grid and what is taken out of the grid by consumers. Um, and that you know, is difficult already when you have very reliable producers of electricity. You know? like the standard conventional grid is uh, nuclear and coal plus uh, gas, maybe hydro, maybe, uh, you know, some other source, minor sources. That's difficult enough. 
But when we talk about solar and wind specifically, um, they are intermittent producers. So they obviously produce a lot when the sun shines and the wind blows and very little when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. So they are producers according to the weather, not according to demand. You know, they produce whenever it's time, not when it's convenient. So this makes balancing this power grid uh, much, much more complicated. So, and there's an obvious cost to every uh, source of energy or source of electricity on the power grid in terms of like, what does a power plan cost? You know, what is the capital investment? What is the fuel cost? What is the operation cost, maintenance, uh, personnel, and so on? Um, and that's true for solar and wind as well, but solar and wind also don't work on their own. So if you had a 100% solar and wind power grid, uh, you would have zero seconds per year power on the grid, right? You couldn't use it. It's, it's always a mismatch between production and consumption. They either produce too much or too little. And so what this does is in order to make solar and wind work, you have to have something else that balances this. And what is done right now, as we speak, the only existing solution right now is duplicative or redundant capacity, reliable capacity. So you have a power, a conventional power grid, you know, coal, nuclear, gas, hydro, something like that, plus solar and wind. And you can never shut, uh, totally shut down the reliable capacity. So in the video, uh, I've just picked a random week in May of this year in the German power grid. And I, I uh, saw, I've sort of found a discrepancy between the minimum production of solar and wind combined to the maximum uh, production of solar and wind combined by a factor of 20. So there's a factor of 20 difference between the minimum you get according to the weather and the maximum according, according to the weather that you get from solar and wind. And this, this big discrepancy needs to be balanced out by something else. Yeah, it's something that you point out in the video too, is that those uh, integration costs don't generally show up in traditional levelized cost studies or generally aren't going to find them in the financial statements of renewable energy companies. It's sort of a difficult costs that isn't readily available to the naked eye. Yeah, so I, I use the analogy of a cost iceberg, you know, some visible part is floating above the waterline and some hidden part of the cost is floating below the water because it's very difficult to actually calculate how much does this cost. So let's say, uh, you know, you have a conventional natural gas fired power plant and a lot of solar and wind. And when solar and wind produce a lot, the natural gas power plant has to ramp down and be very fuel inefficient. And then, uh, you know, solar and wind uh, die down and the natural gas uh, power plant has to ramp up. Um, and so this up and down stop and go traffic doesn't give you a good fuel mileage. And uh, you also have to have, have to pay for the natural gas power plant in the first place. So you have redundant cost. And so, this means there is a significant cost to the total system that doesn't show up in the balance sheet of the operators of solar and wind. Yeah, it seems like that redundancy has to be incredibly expensive for other generators and that there would be no logic in really building these solar and wind power plants without sort of a government incentive to do so. So um, would you mind explaining for us uh, Germany's green financing system and how it's structured and sort of what it leads to? 
Yeah, so the, the, the core element in the electric power sector is the renewable energy law. And so this was uh, the first version of this came up in, in the year 2000. And what it does is it essentially has two key elements. One is a priority feed in of renewable energy. So the grid operators have to take in as much renewable energy as possible whenever possible. So whenever solar and wind are ready to produce according to the weather, everything they produce has to be, has to get onto the grid. That's, a, that's sort of a government mandate. You can't avoid that. The only exception of that is if there's an immediate danger to grid stability, and then they still get compensated for that. The second key feature of this law, and it's still valid to today, is it guarantees a certain level of revenue for renewable energy. And so that means there's a guaranteed profit for solar and wind as long as they produce anything even if they produce at a very inconvenient time. So for example, if there's an excess in, in sun and wind and uh, the power grid is in danger of getting, you know, fried because of too much generation from solar, wind and, you know, all the other sources that have to spin idle in the background to accommodate solar and wind. And so they need to get rid of this excess in power on the grid. So for example, by exporting it to a neighboring country say France. And so this can quickly lead to very low electricity prices on the wholesale spot market and maybe even negative prices, right? Because then it turns from a, the price for good into a waste disposal fee. You need to pay someone to take this away from you immediately. Otherwise, the grid is in danger. And But at that moment, everyone takes a loss except renewables. And in, in the case, our case, specifically solar and wind, because these are the dominant renewable energy sources. Everything else has scalability problems, and this is dominating the German grid. So solar and wind still have the incentive to produce as much as possible and turn a profit, and everyone else suffers loss. What impact has that had on electricity prices for Germans um, in terms of, I guess, residential cu customers, but then also industry? And then, you know, one of the reasons I became interested in what's going on in Germany and wanted to have you on the show is obviously the developments in California. They're having reliability issues. A lot of people have attributed it to their uh, reliance on renewables. In, in Germany, are you guys seeing reliability issues in the similar vein as California? And if not, uh, why do you think that might be the case? Yeah, so reliability issues are not visible to the consumer. So there are some uh, reasons to that there's some facts or, or metrics that indicate that there's a reliability issue coming up, but so far it hasn't reached the consumer. So there's, there's one thing, a concept called interruptible loads, which is essentially a big industrial consumer getting paid to shut down, um, you know, in cases of there's too little uh, electric power on the grid available. Um, so this is formalized in contracts with the government. And so it's not essentially a reliability issue because these people are, you know, volunteering to get shut down with, you know, 15 minutes advance warning. But this kind of thing is increasing. So this means there's something happening in the grid that requires additional um, measures. Then there's also um, an increase in so-called redispatch measures, which means there have to be unscheduled additional capacity coming online. And, uh, you know, 
this is obviously a thing when solar and wind don't produce according to forecast, you have to change plans fairly quickly. Uh, and this is costing money. Um, so reliability for private households is not a thing. Actually, it's, it's the German grid is pretty, pretty uh, decent in its reliability for private consumers. And uh, so the most important factor here is you cannot look at the German power grid in isolation. This is an integrated European grid. So even if Germany has some serious issues balancing the grid, there are big producers outside of Germany, you know, nuclear in France, you know, some hydro in the Alpine region, you know, Poland has a lot of coal, Czech Republic, Ukraine, and so on. Uh, so big producers of electricity and so cross-border trade can balance out a lot of things. You just have to pay premium for it. Sure. It's, it's, uh, you can make almost anything uh, work if you plan ahead and pay a lot of money to do so. So do those price impacts that happen at the like bigger grid level have impacts on individual consumers and their electricity bills? Like might they be more expensive one month because the price was higher, less expensive the next because it was lower depending on how that works? Well, it's, it's not directly um, connected. So there's a wholesale okay. spot market that has increasing volatility and it often has depressed prices. What this does is it essentially takes away the profit margins of other producers like coal power plants, nuclear power plants, and so on. So this impacts them more than the private uh, household consumer. But you can see an increase over time. Since 2000, for example, the private household kilowatt hour price has more than doubled. Now, partially that is driven by also additional taxes, but a big chunk of this is escalating costs for the subsidy scheme. Because the way solar and wind are financed is they get this guaranteed revenue, and then the difference between their you know, guaranteed revenue and the spot market price, that difference is compensated uh, via a fee on every kilowatt hour that a private household pays. And this is also true for small scale industrial consumers. So this has a uh, price impact on the private households and also to some extent to the industrial consumers. Now there is an exception to that large industrial consumers, uh, I think it's over one gigawatt hour per year, they get an exemption for everything above that threshold that they consume. Uh, they pay only a reduced or no fee. Uh, so, you know, this is an acknowledgement that obviously high uh, energy prices for business is a really bad thing, especially for industry. And um, so industry is somewhat shielded and the private household consumer in Germany uh, is left with a bill for this. So there is some indirect um, impact. It's slowly creeping into that, but it's not the entire story in terms of cost. You know, Some burden, cost burden is borne by actually the utilities. They have uh, diminished profit margins uh, and the wholesale market suffers and uh, you know power uh, competing power plants suffer from this so it's it's this is why i use this co uh, cost iceberg analogy because it's not immediately visible to anyone Where, who exactly pays the price for the increase in total system cost okay. so has that uh, doubling of residential electricity prices since 2000 had a like outsized impact on lower income people in Germany have 
have we seen like a rise in the percentage of household income taken up by electricity? Yeah, so the entire policy is sort of regressive in the sense that obviously if you're a low income, a higher percentage share of your income goes uh, to uh, energy expenses. And so in particular in the German welfare state, it's, uh, you know, covering housing for unemployed people and covering heating costs, but not electricity costs. So this has been an issue. And in recent years, there have been reports about increasing disconnects by utilities to consumers that have been way behind in paying their bills, which is very difficult in Germany. You can't just as a utility, you know, cut off someone just because he's behind a month in payments. So these are indications that uh, low-income people in particular are uh, suffering from this, but there's also a different angle on this in the sense that if you have a patch of land, if you own some capital, you can participate in the incentive uh, scheme. You can, you know, buy a wind turbine or let someone build a wind turbine on your patch of land and benefit from that, you know, get some of the uh, subsidies. But if you're, you know, a low-income uh, worker, for example, you just have to pay the higher electricity bills. Yes, you're left with that. Something that's difficult for us to get a sense of here in the United States is the degree to which the energy transition programs, the degree to which they have support amongst the people, I guess. You know, we would expect with rising prices that people would sort of become alert to this and push back at policies that are causing high electricity bills. What is the general public's sort of perception of the energy transition? Yeah, so it's pretty much the standard thing. If you look at surveys, people are generally uh, have a positive attitude towards renewables or green energy. Uh, you know, they will say, yes, of course, we are for expanding those. And then they have a generally negative sentiment towards coal and nuclear in particular. Uh, but as soon as it, you know, the questions go into the direction, hey, how much do you want to pay extra for this? They get very hostile towards that. So they want both things, you know, the positive, uh, the green, uh, you know, the renewable, these are all positive. Uh, they have all a positive connotation. Uh, but they do not want to pay extra. So this, this is a very common thing, you know, across societies, I guess. Um, but one thing that the government cleverly did is it aligned a lot of interests with its agenda. So, for example, uh, so it sold this to, uh, you know, uh, roofers, for example, so they would get uh, a certificate to install solar panels. So this is a new opportunity. You can charge extra. You can make, uh, do some business with that and so on. And so obviously solar and wind lobby and then some, uh, you know, uh, renewable energy um, sort of job numbers and so on. This, this sounds like, oh, yeah, this is a net positive for the entire economy. And people do not make generally the connection between, you know, high energy prices. So a couple of years ago, the Green Party in particular was pushing this narrative. Oh, yeah, look, the wholesale prices are eroding thanks to solar and wind because they are super cheap. Uh, you know, in reality, of yeah. course, this is a mismatch between production and consumption. But then they said, yeah, but these evil utility companies, they are not, you know, reducing the household prices. That's the problem. They are making the problems. But then that was debunked by these utilities having financial troubles. Sure. 
similar to what we're starting to see here in the U.S. and states that are developing uh, stricter renewal portfolio standards and things. Uh, back to the, the green financing system, since uh, COVID pandemic has started, from my understanding, the, uh, the drop in demand for electricity has caused some problems with the way that system operates and seems to be an example of how planners didn't foresee sort of a shock to the system coming down the road. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the problems that have emerged there and what's been going on, the actions that the German government's taken to respond? Yeah, so there are two things converging at the same time. So one is uh, the pandemic policies. The shutdown in Germany has led to some drop in electricity demand just like it has everywhere else. Um, and that coincided with a very favorable weather pattern in the first half of 2020 for renewable production. So sun was shining on a lot of days and wind was blowing a lot. So a lot of production from solar and wind. And so what this does is, so I talked about the guaranteed revenue and this is financed in a sort of budget scheme. You, you pay a fee on every kilowatt hour and that fee then goes towards these producers of solar and wind to make up the difference between their you know, guaranteed compensation and the wholesale market. So they, solar and wind essentially depress the wholesale market price, uh, increase the amount uh, that the budget had to take to compensate uh, them. So at the same time, there was essentially less demand and more production from the subsidized energy sources. And so this exhausted the budget pretty quickly. And so what would normally happen is that by next year, the fee on every kilowatt hour would drastically increase, something like from now 6.7 euro cents to something like 8 cents plus. So pretty steep increase, like 20% or so. And so this is obviously bad news and a hard sell to the consumer. And what the government then did was it had just in this uh, Corona relief package, it just integrated for at least two years, something like 11 billion euros in uh, taxpayer funds going towards that budget. So they filled up the coffers of this budget in order to prevent the, uh, the electricity prices to increase. And then just spread the cost to taxpayers yeah. at large, basically. Correct. Hidden cost again. Where do you think that the German energy market's headed? Um, do you have any sort of specific concerns going forward? Uh, anything that you kind of derive from everything else we've talked about uh, today and then also just the other issues that you're paying attention to? Well, there are, there are a couple of things on the horizon. So the immediate thing is that, uh, so between something like 2009 and 2017, Germany didn't actually reduce its CO2 emissions overall throughout the economy. It didn't make much progress in that. Um, and part of that is that all of this capacity has to be kept alive in order to support solar and wind and at an inefficient level. And so some you know, economic growth then leads to more emission uh, overall. And uh, so overall, this scheme wasn't going anywhere. Then they increased the pressure specifically on coal. And right now, Coal capacity is decreasing, especially hard coal. Lignite is still stagnant. Uh, nuclear is obviously phased out over time. Like in two years, it's gone. Solar and wind are right now the fastest growing uh, electricity sources in Germany. And this is likely to continue. The incentives are still in place and the government has committed to 
increasing the funds if necessary by any means possible. And so these are the trends, they will continue. It will be interesting to see whether this capacity gap after the nuclear phase out is completed um, will create reliability problems of a large scale, especially, and this is dependent on the European integrated grid. What are the neighbors doing? You know, France is talking about phasing out parts of its nuclear fleet, you know, until the mid 1930s. Uh, we don't know whether that will happen or not, but this is, these are the indicators. Then Germany has committed to a phase, a complete phase out of coal by 2038. I don't think it will happen. There will be adjustments to this. Uh, it has to change. There's, there's no way just solar and wind happen in, in the late 1930s. But uh, yeah, so the, the bigger threat will be a combination of what the neighboring countries are doing, how stable the entire European grid will be, and whether or not the nuclear phase out will be compensated by something like maybe short-term construction of natural gas. Uh, coal is probably out of the picture. It's, it's not carefully planned. Like there's really, they need to come up with something to make up for that because this will definitely lead to reliability issues. On the upside, there's you know, a silver lining. The government by committing to uh, you know, uh, compensating or, or filling up the uh, renewable energy subsidy uh, budget, it has acknowledged it cares about cost. It's politically dangerous to increase cost. So there, there has to be some political reaction to that. There has to be some kind of easement in the coal phase out, something like that. So that's that's the optimistic. There's an idea in political economy that uh, our founder here at IER, Rob Bradley's contributed to this, that basically the mixed economy is unstable in that um, interventions and markets have unintended consequences. And basically uh, mixed economies get to a point where bureaucrats and politicians begin to scramble to cover up the unintended consequences of their policies. And it gets to a point where societies need to decide whether to either abandon the interventionist mindset and commit to a market economy or double down and force everything even stronger into um, whatever the plan is. The reason I bring this up is just from what I've seen in California and to some extent what it sounds like is happening in Germany, this seems to be playing out in electricity markets in places where we see really high degrees of political mandates for sources of energy and um, the political system um, inserting itself into basically the operation of the market. Well, I definitely agree that there's some instability. Um, so yeah, unintended consequences are a constant issue. But so fundamentally, if you look how this came to be, the situation, it's a decades long victory march of certain ideas. So the fundamental thing that needs to change is not, oh, the electricity brought price goes up by X percent or something. It has to be a fundamental change of ideas. So if we want to change this, we need to change the green ideal of minimum impact, the you know, sentiment that renewables are like just an, an inherent goal in themselves. And so I don't know, it, it, it depends. Like ideas drive history. And so this is where we need to do, uh, start impacting things. And so far, uh, 
you know, the free market guys have not done a splendid job. So there's room for improvement. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't covered here that you think uh, like an American audience looking in and trying to understand Germany's energy market and uh, energy policies uh, that we haven't covered that uh, you think is important to discuss? Well, I, I just want to emphasize again, like the, the especially the electric grid is something, some complex machinery. And there are a lot of trends going on that, that you don't see until it's too late. So be, be very careful when you listen to people and they are just, you know, focusing on renewables and, and you know, this missing nuclear and they're just, uh, you know, pushing certain policies specifically for the American context, you know, ask yourself, given the natural gas revolution, given the plumbing of, of uh, coal prices and so on, why hasn't your electricity bill significantly decreased, right? So there, there are hidden trends that you don't obviously see. And, you know, when it comes to reliability issues, you know, maybe California will be a prime example for that. Uh, we'll have to wait for the report, the official reports, what exactly happened. But uh, yeah, this might be a, well be an indicator of a hidden trend in unreliability. And, and this is something to look out for. So you have to be prudent and you have to be um, wary of things that are not obviously visible. Yeah, that is definitely something to try to be more cognizant of. So to finish us off, uh, what are you currently working on and uh, where can our listeners go to find your work? Yeah, so the, the project I'm most involved in right now is energytalkingpoints.com, which is a, you know, a collection of messages from Joe Biden's energy plan to the so-called climate crisis uh, that we're working at at the uh, Center for Industrial Progress. And uh, so you can just go there. It's uh, free of charge. It's public content. It's work in progress. We'll expand that. We'll get a more detailed thing. And essentially, it's a sort of collection of messaging items uh, and educational items in tweet lengths. So you can easily spread this uh, over social media. This is right now the most important project, you know, leading up to the US elections, of course. Um, yeah, other than that, you can go to industrialprogress.com and sign up to the newsletter, then you will find out more stuff about me and other people at CIP. And if you want to support that work, you can also go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate and, you know, see if you want to chime in and uh, support our cause and create more, have us create more public content like this. Great. Our guest today has been Stefan Hain. Stefan, thank you again for your time today.